This is Talkback, 721-1290 or 1-800-568-5309. This is News Talk KGVO, AM 1290 and 98.3 FM. KGVO, Missoula's news and weather station. Hey, hey, welcome everybody. Good to have you along this morning on this Monday, Martin Luther King Jr. edition of uh, Talkback. Talkback is brought to you by Phillips Janitorial, where they offer residential and commercial cleaning. They've got a powerful steam extraction method that brings all those tired and dirty carpets right back to life. And by the way, don't worry if your job is too big or too small. There's no such thing. Give them a call for a free estimate at 260-6617 with a 406. Also brought to you by Brooklyn Bagel and Bakery. Authentic New York bagels and pastries all the way from Little Italy can be found right here in Missoula. The only place you'll find them is Brooklyn Bagel and Bakery out on North Reserve. The views and opinions expressed on TalkBack are not those of the staff, management, or advertisers. Hey, welcome, everybody. Glad to have you along. I'm Peter Christian. That is the New York Giants' best, <laughs> biggest fan right there. <laughs> I'm Nick, probably up there, yeah. Nick Christensen. Uh, okay, okay. I want to ask you why. why. Why do you like the Giants? I was born a Giants fan, so my dad <laughs> my, okay. my, my dad is a huge Giants fan, and so, I mean, I have a picture of me in the hospital um, when I was first born, and my dad's wearing a Giants sweatshirt. So, you know, I... Wow. I so I grew up a Giants fan, been a Giants fan, and so yeah, yesterday was was a lot of fun. It was our first playoff win in eleven years, <laughs> and to also put things in perspective, before this season, the previous five combined, we had the worst record in the league. I mean, so for five years, it's been torture, and this year has been fun so far. So what's the difference? What, what we got a brand new coach, we yeah. got a brand new general manager. What's funny is the roster isn't that different than last year or right. years past. Right. And once this new coach and GM even get some of the players that they want to bring in, we're supposed to be even better. So it's kind of the the start of something for the Giants, which it is pretty fun. a dynasty. I'm, I'm hoping. A dynasty in the making, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. It, it and really you are be. here to see the birth of this. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. But yeah, in five years, I'll still be here. Peter will still be here. I can guarantee you that. And we'll be talking about the Giants winning three Super Bowls by then or wow. something. Yeah, there you go. Wow. All right. You going to put any money on that? Right? Uh, no. no. <laughs> okay. Anyway. Well, there, there were some really great games. I, I, you also had to feel for the Baltimore team. Yeah, that was a tough one yeah. for, for that. They were getting ready last to, night. They're getting ready to go ahead, right? <laughs> they're, they're, they're on the half-yard line. All they have to do is get the ball over the... And so uh, the quarterback, whose name I can't remember, anyway, jumps up and... He has, tries to ball, reach the ball out. Right, and yeah. then somebody knocks it out of his hands. It literally bounces <laughs> into the arms of a, a Bengals player, a, a, a Bengals defensive yeah. lineman. Now, Sam Hubbard. Yeah. Keep in mind, these guys are like close to three hundred pounds, yeah, right? Like six five, six and, six. Yeah. And and he's saying, "Oh, look what I found!" <laughs> a present. <And> so, <laughs> so off he goes. And and th this is the time when you want to have John Madden. You know, uh, yeah. rumbling, stumbling. He just might make it. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So anyway, the, they went all the way. Uh, I think it was the longest. Uh, uh, fumble fumble recovery. return, recovery, return for a touchdown in playoff history, a hundred yards. Yeah, you have so. to, you feel for the Ravens, but uh, people probably forget there is that game Saturday between the Chargers and Jaguars, oh. where the Chargers were up twenty-seven to zero, yep. 
and ended up losing the game 31 to 30. So yeah. like, yeah. it was just a wild, wild weekend for the NFL, but you, it was fun. But it was, yeah. yeah. And, and I'll bet viewership was through the roof. Oh yeah. Uh, because they were really good games with good teams. And, and uh, I, I'm just curious, do you have any, are you keeping track of the viewership of the NFL throughout the regular season? Is it down? Is oh, it it's up? number one. It's, they're always number one. What's really? funny, too, okay. is, um, oh, what what was it? It was, I think it was, ironically, the Giants-Cowboys Thanksgiving game. Um, it, shatter, it shattered some sort of viewing record uh, this year. And ironically, like the NFL... You know how they have the NFL draft every year. That gets more viewership than some other major sports. So right, it's like right. the, the NFL, when it comes to viewership and TV revenue, they're king and will always be king. Well, it, so. it, that's, that's interesting you would say that because if you remember several years ago when Will Smith did a movie called Concussion. Yeah. And there, the NFL tried to squash uh, <laughs> uh, this, this gentleman. Uh, Dr. Romalo, I think was his name. Yep. And uh, his findings about CTE, uh, chronic encephalotrauma, what, what is something like that? Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, they tried to they tried to quash it and ended up now now it's part of the NFL protocol, the concussion protocol. But anyway, and they they were afraid that oh my gosh, if if moms and dads don't let their kids play football <laughs> in ten years, there'll be no professional football and. You know. Well, and since then they've made you know some rule changes to yeah. try to make yeah. the game safer. Obviously, they they moved the kickoff yardage line forward so there's less kickoff returns because apparently they did the stats and a lot of concussions come from mm -hmm. you know the two teams running from right. opposite ends and right. colliding with each other. And then um, the rule that still got NFL fans up in arms is mm -hmm. the. Uh, roughing the passer rules because right. they're protecting the quarterback so much. And even in the Giants game this weekend, there was a questionable roughing the passer because you feel like you can't even touch the quarterback anymore. Right. So right. from that movie and obviously from concussions that, that were happening, I mean, they did make some changes to try to make it safer. Okay, so. one, one more football thing. Uh, yes. I was not able to watch the Hula Bowl, which included Montana Grizzly players. Uh, uh, um, uh, Justin Ford and oh. uh, and and O'Connell. I didn't even know that was going on either. Yeah, and, and so I wanted to find out if any, did anybody have a chance to watch that, and if they first of all did they get in the game, and if they got in the game, were there any tackles? You know, plays. Yeah, did they make any play? Yeah, I don't know. I'll have to look that up. I didn't anyway. even know that was being played. So, anyway. Hula Bowl. You said it's the, a the Hula Bowl, which was ironically played in L.A. <laughs> oh, really? <No. laughs> <laughs> yeah, so because I, you would think the hula bowl would be in Hawaii. Yeah, one would think, but yeah, interesting. Anyway, so uh, we're, we'll tell you what, let's let's go ahead and take a break. It's open phones, ladies and gentlemen. From now until nine o'clock, I realize it's a holiday, right? It's a Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. Uh, there's no school today. Banks are closed. Stock market is closed. Uh, just about every government office you can think of, um, all, all the city and county and state offices are closed. So why the heck are we here? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so if you're, if you're one of those lucky ducks yeah. that has the day off uh, and you've got something on your mind, give us a call. 721-1290 is our number. And again, it's open phones until 9. And then, ladies and gentlemen, Drs. Uh, Michael Mayer and uh, Mirdad Kia. Uh, probably one in the studio, probably one on the phone. We'd love to have Mirdad back in the studio. But anyway, we'll get so, him back. <laughs> talking about a book uh, about Dwight David Eisenhower. I think it's simply called Eisenhower. 
So anyway, uh, we'll be doing that at 9 o'clock, but we'd love to hear from you first. 721-1290, it's Open Phones. Okay, we're back on Talk Back. By the way, Nick just showed me the photo of him. I told you there's proof. Yeah, that's why I just wanted you to believe it. Now, that's not the same sweatshirt, is it? No, oh. no, no, no. Man. I, I don't think he even has that sweatshirt. It'd okay. be 31 anyway. years old now. Anyway, all right. So we have folks on the line right now. It's open phone, so let's get right to it. Uh, Susan is up first. Hey, Susan, what's on your mind? Well, this is not political okay. at all. All right. Um, a lot of people in this community and all around the country and for that matter, all around the world are very, very kind hearted and are designated unofficially as caregivers for people that they love. And I am, I'm one of those that helps someone on a daily basis that I love. And I am sending out a plea to those of us who are caregivers that they seek the help of professional nurses and CNAs and also listen to the doctors that are highly trained. And I deeply respect them because a lot of times patients become very demanding and drain the caregiver of every ounce of energy. And I never have felt guilty asking for help. And um, I yesterday was talking with some friends of mine that are also caregivers, but at this point are refusing to reach out to the medical community for professional help for their loved ones. And this is not the time to be stubborn. This is the time to accept help graciously. And I think as we are adults and as we see our loved ones failing, it's important for all of us to recognize that we are not superhumans and um, we need help. And also for those that have the gift of caring, this is the time to apply for those jobs because there is a critical shortage of people that can actually help. And we need people with strong backs and strong knees and generally are under the age of 35, which honestly in this community is a little difficult. But um, I just would like to encourage people to not get overwhelmed because I have had three cases of friends of mine that were caregivers that died before the patient died because they didn't get help for themselves. Wow. Well, th thank you so much for sharing that, Susan. Really appreciate it. You bet. Okay, and I kiddo. hope that it will save the life of a sweet and precious caregiver. You bet. Well, you take care of yourself, all right? Oh, I am. Good. No, I definitely right. am. Excellent. I'm a believer in reaching out for people to help, but a lot of people don't. They, they think, and my mother was one of them, you know, oh, I can handle this myself. You know, this is my duty. This is, this is my job. Well, no, it's not. <laughs> you need help. You bet. Yeah. All right, kiddo. It. Thanks so much. Okay. Appreciate it. Good All right. Uh, Dave is up next. Dave, good morning. Thank you for holding. You're on Talk Back. What's on your mind? 
Yes, back about the secret document, the you know, secret. So, okay. First, first of all, I'd like to say that I would like I'm likely to vote for either Trump or Biden with the next election cycle. But uh, Fox News, the defense of Trump, who says, you know, he declassified the information. Fox News, Jonathan Turley, who's the legal expert for Fox, basically shot that idea down and saying that there's no evidence that Trump uh, declassified information. And that he also went on to say that uh, the legal system would would highly doubt it would vote for I would support that um, statement now um, as far as Biden's defense as, as I understand it he uh, he will probably try to claim that you know his son died back in May of 2015 and that he was vice president during that time and he moved his office to, to his home residence and uh, that's where he kept his the secret documents were brought to his home residence during that time. I, you know, I, I personally believe that that both the president and the vice president should be held responsible for those informa- those documents, and and they both failed. So I w- wouldn't think too highly of either one of them. All right, thanks for the call, Matt. Appreciate it, Dave. Yep. All right. Uh, up next is Jeff. Jeff, good morning. Uh, you're on Talkback. Good to hear from you again, sir. What's up? Hey, good morning. Not going to go down that rabbit hole. We've exercised that to death. Um, Two things. Well, three things, actually. I heard today that I think it was on your show that Gina Lola Brigida. Yes, she passed away. She was 90-something. 95 years old. Wow. That, if if there's something that's going to make you feel old, (laughs) (laughs) it's the thought of Gina passing. I mean, my memories of her are nothing of a 95-year-old. Tell so. me about it. Yeah, uh, Gina Lola Bridget. Yeah. Uh, she she actually, I believe, did a movie that I saw in Turner Classic Movies. It was called Samson and Delilah or something like that. She played uh, or, or some uh, some sort of, um, no, it, maybe, she, maybe she played, well, something something biblical, right? But but she, she was, she was Samson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe it was Samson. <laughs> I don't know what it was. But, but she... Uh, 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 she didn't look very biblical, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. Yes, I do. All right. Okay. All right, ma'am. Right, two other things. Yes, go ahead. First, uh, following on that, I don't know if you remember or not, but today is the one-year anniversary of Trapper Mike's passing. Oh, wow. Thank so, you for sharing a year that. Ago, yeah, a year ago he passed. I miss his gruff old, I don't know if you call it wisdom, but whatever it was, I miss it. I I I miss his uh, Avon uh, stories. He said he said he used to sell Avon. <laughs> yeah, it was door to door, doing Avon. That's right. You bet. Uh, love, yep. love. And, yep. and Mike always wanted us to remember, you know, talk to each other. That was one thing that That's right. I remember him mentioning over and over and over again is, you know, people don't talk to each other enough, you know, because he said he'd sit down with someone and have a conversation with them. And, and so, yeah, that, that was that was what I remember Mike for the most. And, and he loved the Western Montana Fair because he was always, I think, at the Republican booth or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and so he would sit and engage people. And he said, we just don't, uh, as Nick said, said so well, it, he uh, he just wants people to communicate because what what what's that what's that classic phrase? What we have here is failure <laughs> yeah. to communicate. <laughs> yep. And then finally, um, 
Number three is, uh, I don't know if you remember or not, but right after the 2021 inauguration, I predicted that um, some two years after Biden got inaugurated, when um, that would allow for the uh, presidential succession rule, which says that a president can't be president for more than 10 years, it would allow the vice president to become president. He would have a scandal and he would resign. Um, well, we're coming up on that, and look what we have. We have a scandal about documents. The odd thing about this is, too, is it's White House lawyers who are finding these documents in Biden residences. How is that possible? I mean, why is the White House out scouring his residences for documents? I don't understand the, the whole backstory on this. It was... It, it doesn't make sense to me. Does it make sense to you? Well, uh, if if that if that indeed is true, then there may be a, a seed or two being planted that they don't want to have to deal with him again in, in two more years. That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that somebody back there and in my this this might venture a little bit into conspiracy theory, but uh, <laughs> I think I think. Uh, Barack Obama has been behind this in one way or another ever since Joe got nominated as a president, as a Democratic candidate for uh, for president. And uh, he's he's doing he's pulling some strings behind the scenes, I firmly believe. Even, now, to, even, uh, now, correct me if, I, if, if I'm wrong, but did not uh, uh, former President Obama refuse to actually campaign for him? Um, I don't think he refused to campaign. I, what I remember is that he was very, very adamant. He was the one who got Kamala Harris as vice president because she was his candidate when she failed so abysmally um, and, and withdrew from the primary. Right, because she didn't, she didn't win a single, she didn't win a single state. Yeah, yeah, her, yeah. Yeah, that's what I remember. So. Um, I don't know. I don't know any of the details. It's all just kind of conjecture. But yep. twenty years of doing intel, you kind of put little pieces together, <laughs> things that make you go, hmm, and you go, you know, here it is. Two years later, there's a scandal. Um, it's being orchestrated by people who are supposed to be on his team. I mean, if somebody from Trump's team was out there uh, blowing uh, the whistle on Trump, you know, you would hear all sorts of things about it. But it's very, very quiet and hush hush, and I more to follow, I'm sure. But it just things that make you go, hmm. Hmm. You got it. All right, Jeff. Thanks for the call, buddy. Appreciate it. We're going to come right back. Seven two one twelve ninety. All of our lines are open, and we have another few minutes left. Uh, and again, at nine o'clock, it'll be the KGVO Book Club. We're looking forward to having our our two history professors from the University of Montana join us. That. How is your job to school? Let me tell you. I had to get my iced coffee first. I just can't seem to put it down. My favorite rapper just announced a tour. My phone was buzzing like crazy. I'm so excited. I had to text all my friends right then to talk about it. Then someone started calling me and... Let's try that again. I turned my phone off right away. I never drive distracted. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. And we're back on Talkback. We have about ooh, three minutes or so before we have to take our hard break at the top of the hour. And then, of course, it'll be the KGVO Book Club after that. Harry's on the line. Harry, thank you for holding, sir. Go ahead. 
Yeah, good morning. Yeah, I just got a comment on Jeff's idea. That, I mean, sure, it's in the Bilderbergers behind it, or maybe George Soros, or maybe even the reptilians. I mean, they could be behind it, too. I mean, this whole thing about Biden. Uh, it's just, it was going to come out. They just, they, uh, you know, they found documents, and they, you know, it's, they held off as much as possible, but they, it got out there. I mean, the, the idea that, you know, well, if Trump... His uh, White House was leak city. I mean, everything he did was leaked. I mean, you know, when he blew his nose, everybody knew about it. So it was, you know, hardly that uh, it was uh, hardly kept secret of anything about what Trump did. So, I mean, this uh, and this is hardly a huge uh, um, uh, controversy. I mean, he's just, so. So let, let me ask. Let, let me ask yeah. him here. Do you, do you do you think this whole document thing is just a much ado about nothing is just something to report on because there's nothing else to report on. Yeah, pretty much. I, I mean, also it's it's sort of tit for tat. I mean, you know, the Trump was the, the, so oh, now Biden has it now too. Oh, you know, is so we got to and with the doc, uh, Republicans uh, Republicans in charge of Congress, they got of course they're going to beat it with a hammer to to bring. Oh, I well, see, he, Biden just as bad as Trump was. So you know, it's it's I mean, it's. A mistake. I mean, as far as I can see, I mean, it's unless they can prove that it wasn't, then if it's, you know, if all Biden had snuck it out and hidden his hit garage for some nefarious reason, then I can see, you know, maybe. But, you know, you got a stacks of papers and there's like 20 uh, odds uh, papers in there that are classified. And we don't even know what, classified, what they're classified. What are right, they? Right. I mean, you know, they classify pretty well, much we, everything, we, you know. We, we can't know because... They're classified. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I mean, and they, they classify everything. Yeah. You know, the, the uh, president's uh, uh, daily schedule. I'm sure is classified because they don't want nobody to know until hey. until it's out there. Hey, so hey, who knows? Harry, I got to get one more call in before the break. Alrighty. But thank you. Yeah. Thanks for the call. Uh, this is J uh, John. Good morning. We got about a minute and a half. Go ahead, sir. Thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to say that uh, the, the caller before that was. Uh, right about uh, Obama. You know, he's been running things since the beginning. I've referred to uh, this administration as the Obama administration for quite a while now. Uh, nobody has ever uh, hated America like that man has. And, uh, you know, it's, it, this is the, the documents just come at a opportune time to get the, uh, the focus off the, what the Republicans are doing. All right, John. Well, thanks for the call. Thank you. Appreciate it, sir. All right. So uh, that means we have about, oh, less than a minute. Uh, Dr. Michael Mayer joining us here in the studio this morning. He is here. So we are definitely going to talk about the KGBO Book Club. And the book is called Eisenhower. And I, I see it right there. There it is right there. Here, let me, let me show the It's right here. And it's a hardcover. <laughs> anyway, sorry to damage the microphone. Our engineer is going to say, don't do that. Anyway, also uh, joining us this morning will be Dr. Mirdad Kia. Uh, he's at his office at the University of Montana. So we will come back after the top of the hour and uh, talk about the KGVO Book Club. Taking your phone calls to 721-1290. This is Talkback. 721-1290 or 1-800-568-5309. This is News Talk KGVO, AM 1290 and 98.3 FM. KGVO.
Missoula's news and weather station. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Hour number two of Talk Back is underway. Uh, time for the KGVO Book Club, and it's brought to you this morning by Phillips Janitorial, offering residential and commercial cleaning with no job being too big or small. Uh, the number to call, 406-260-6617. Get a free estimate there. Also brought to you by Brooklyn Bagel and Bakery for all of your New York favorites. Flown directly in from New York, by the way. Uh, Lox New York Cheesecake, Cannolis, Delicious Bagel Sandwiches, all at Brooklyn Bagel and Bakery, located on North Reserve. The views and opinions expressed on TalkBack are not those of the staff, management, or advertisers. Okay, here we are. It is time now for the KGVO Book Club. And uh, first of all, Nick Christensen over there waiting to take your phone calls. Good morning. At uh, 721-1290. Joining us on the phone right now, uh, Dr. Mirdad Kia from the University of Montana Department of History. uh, Retired professor, Michael Mayer, uh, joining us here this morning. Good to see you, sir. Good to see you. Okay, gentlemen, uh, Mirdad and Michael, the floor is yours. Go ahead. Well, good morning uh, to you, Peter and Nick. Thank you for having us uh, uh, once again on this very exciting topic. I wanted to ask Mike to talk a little bit about the book, introduce the book, and then I will jump in. But uh, we decided to um, sort of uh, discuss this book and the topic um uh, which is a very important one, uh, President Dwight D. Eisenhower and his presidency, not so much because of our politics, but because uh, it's a very interesting era, uh, post-Second World War, moving into the 60s and very important era in terms of change in the United States. And we thought it might fascinate and might interest some of our listeners in terms of um, why it is important and why it is being um, looked upon in a very different light today and why President Eisenhower is coming back as a very popular president, Um, probably one of the top five in the history of the country. Anyway, with no further ado, here's Mike. Mike, please. Morning. Um, I I thought I'd start with a story. it's, it was as D-Day approached, and um, the weather was bad. Uh, the invasion had already been postponed once, and the ties were suitable only on June 5th, 6th, and 7th. If they didn't get out in that window, they'd have to wait till the 19th. And then there are problems about whether you can maintain security or secrecy, uh, maintain the readiness of the troops, the morale of the troops. Uh, Stalin was champing at the bit. So um, it, it, there was a lot of pressure here. And the original date was June 5th, but... On June 3rd, uh, the weather was bad, and they made a decision to postpone for 24 hours. The Allies had an advantage because they could fly over Iceland and see what fronts were coming through. They had air superiority, and the Germans couldn't. Um, On June 4th, the weather was bad. On June 5th, um, they... At night, they, they ordered the troops on... Eisenhower ordered the troops onto the boats in, in case uh, conditions permitted... And then the meteorologists came in, led by Group Captain uh, J.M. Stagg. And they said that the weather was going to be bad, but it would be within the realm of acceptable, just you know, at the bottom end of that. Um, and he, he said that, that, you know, that, that it should be okay to go. And Eisenhower went around the room and asked all the commanders for their opinions. Um, he thought 
and then gave what was probably the most significant order in the history of Western civilization, because this didn't work, Western civilization might not have survived. We'd, uh, all, be, we'd all be speaking German. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, uh, right. Uh, or, yeah. or not, yeah. as the case may be. Right. And um, he gave the order to go, and then characteristically stepped back, let his commanders do their jobs. He was not a micromanager. But the one thing he did do is he went back to his room, and he wrote out a statement in case the landings did not succeed. Wow. And he wrote... Our landings in the Cherbourg Harvard area have failed to gain satisfactory foothold, and the troops have been withdrawn. Then he crossed that out and rewrote it. He wrote, Our landings in the Cherbourg and Harvard areas have failed to gain a satisfactory foothold, and I have withdrawn the troops. No passive voice. No mistakes were made. And he wrote, My decision to attack at this time and place was based upon the best information available. The troops, the air, the Navy did all the bravery and devotion to duty could do. If any blame or fault attaches to the attempt, it is mine alone. Can you imagine anybody today writing that? He put it in the pocket of his Eisenhower jacket in case he needed it. And then, of course, when the landings uh, actually gained a foothold, he handed it to Harry Butcher, his naval aide, who immediately put it in a scrapbook. And that's, mm-hmm. why, that's why we have it. And I remember seeing that for the first time in 1977 at the Eisenhower Library and thinking... How could you function under that kind of pressure? How could you make that sort of statement? What kind of, of individual was able to do that? And part of it is just what Merida was talking about. I mean, sort of background and, 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 and character. Eisenhower was one of our mid-century, mid-20th century presidents. We had four out of five in the middle of the century who came from very modest backgrounds. Truman, Eisenhower, and Nixon and Johnson. Uh, Kennedy obviously was richer than God, but um, the the uh, those four all you know roughly the same age, certainly same generation. Eisenhower's a little bit older. Um, really marked something important, and I think part of it is it's no chronological accident that Eisenhower was the last president born in the 19th century. What you see in that instance are um, 19th century values: honor, duty, uh, responsibility, character. Character, right? And I'll, I'll 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 just give one more message that he wrote during the war. At the end uh, of the war, when the, when the Germans surrendered, the Allied commanders had these grand, eloquent statements they wanted to issue. Eisenhower issued this: "The mission of this Allied force was fulfilled at 0241 local time, May seventh, nineteen forty-five." Eisenhower. Now think of the people you know who on their email signatures have every achievement they've ever done, um, including their attendance award in elementary school, um, uh, listed under their name on their email. Eisenhower wrote Eisenhower. It's a different generation. It's a different set of, uh, it's a different set of character traits. And I think that's really what, uh, what Meriden may have had in mind. And um, although it has its flaws, Kennard's book gives us uh, a good opportunity to begin talking about that. With that, we're up against a break, uh, gentlemen, and uh, we would love to have some phone calls, especially folks who were around uh, maybe when Eisenhower was president or remember him from history uh, because we... I'm also wondering, uh, if if you were to walk into the average high school history or civics class... How much uh, uh, of the time is spent on someone like Dwight David Eisenhower, as opposed to the more, you know, the more colorful, like the Kennedys, that that sort of thing? Uh, Moving on. Okay, the lines are open, 721-1290. We're going to come right back and uh, talk with our our esteemed guests uh, for uh, for the KGVO Book Club. We'll be right back. 
for over 100 years. Okay, we're back. This is Talkback. 721-1290 is our number. It's KGVO Book Club going on right now. We have Dr. Uh, Michael Mayer here in the studio, Dr. Mirdad Kia uh, from his office there at the University of Montana. And we do have a caller already, a couple of them actually. Let's get, I believe, Dave. No, Helena. Oh, Helena's up first. Helena, good morning. You're on Talkback. Thank you for holding. Yes, thanks for taking my call. Um, I haven't had a chance to read the book yet, but I'm wondering how much it tells about Dwight Eisenhower's childhood and family background. It's my understanding from people who know the subject better than I do that it's quite interesting and um, may have been very formative in uh, in his character, the, like um, Professor Mayer was describing. So I wonder if your guest could comment on that. All right. Thanks for the call. Yeah, uh, the, gentlemen. The, the book does actually, um, for a very short book. It's, 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 it's not, a, not a large book. Yeah, yeah, for a very short book. It does devote a fair bit of time to his background. And I think, um, because Helen is absolutely right, it, 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 it is important. Um, he came from a family that was an offshoot of the Mennonites, the River Brethren, a peace church. And uh, they weren't well off at all. Um, his, the Eisenhower family who had come over from Germany and settled in Pennsylvania and then moved to uh, Kansas were reasonably successful farmers. But Eisenhower's father was not very successful. The best job he ever had was the foreman of the Bell Springs Creamery in Abilene, Kansas. And uh, when you think about the achievements of that family, Arthur, the oldest, became a multimillionaire banker. Edgar became a successful lawyer, the president of the American Bar Association. Dwight did okay. Yeah. Uh, he was general and president. Yeah. Uh, Roy was um, a successful pharmacist. Earl was the publisher of a newspaper in Chicago. And Milton was an advisor to every president from Hoover through Johnson and was president of Kansas State, Penn State, and Johns Hopkins twice. I guess they did okay. They did okay. And uh, Ida, the mother, I think is the driving force behind that. But it's, it's astonishing. You go to, the, uh, to Abilene, the Eisenhower home has been preserved. And it's a modest little place. There's uh, on the first floor, there's a kind of kitchen, dining room, there's a front parlor and there's a bedroom for the parents. There's three small bedrooms upstairs. Six big athletic boys, uh, except Milton. Uh, five big athletic boys in Milton. And uh, one of the rooms was rented out to a school teacher much of the time. So, I mean, th these guys um, had a, a, a drive. Um, and Eisenhower wound up at West Point because he and his brother Edgar had a plan. Edgar devised this, really, that uh, he wanted to go to the University of Michigan. And that what they would do is, because their father couldn't afford to send them, they would each go for a year while the other worked to support them. Then they'd switch, and in eight wow. years, they'd both be at college. Wow. Well, Edgar was the oldest. He went to Michigan. Dwight worked in the creamery and decided this was not the way to go. And um, he had a friend named Swede Hazlitt, who would remain a friend until Hazlitt's death in the 50s. And uh, he was going to Annapolis. And Eisenhower got the idea to take the competitive exam, and he finished um, second among those taking the exam. And he was too old to go to Annapolis. They had an age limit. Uh, he'd spent a year out of school, mm -hmm. and right. uh, so he went to West Point. And he was, he was in the military during... Uh, he graduated. He, he served stateside during the First World War. He was a brilliant trainer. He was a tra tank trainer at Camp Colt in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And um, then he had a dead-end career between the wars. Uh, there were no, no promotions. The United States had the 17th largest military in the world, behind Romania and Yugoslavia. And uh, then World War II came, and he, he jumped ahead and, of course, became uh, the, the Supreme Commander. All right. Uh, we, we have another caller. Uh, I believe uh, Ed is up next. Ed, good morning. You're on with our guests for the KGVO Book Club. Go ahead, sir. 
Yeah, sorry, I'm delinquent too. I didn't read the book, but uh, from growing up in the '50s, I re- remember the Suez Canal uh, crisis being the biggest thing uh, in uh, Eisenhower's presidency. And first of all, you know, is that true? And uh, could you describe more about what what happened? Uh, it, I looked it up, and it was 1956. I was 12 years old at the time, but I think we studied it in in uh, in high school. We we looked at it, and that's that's why I'm remembering this thing. So could could you talk about that a little bit? Thanks, Ed. Yeah. So I would say a few words, and Mike can continue. I uh, the the Suez crisis, as it's referred to. And you are absolutely correct, 1956 has something to do with the tension between Egypt and uh, the British who wanted to maintain their role in, uh, in the Middle East. Uh, and uh, they had held Egypt as a, more or less as a colony, as a protectorate uh, since 1882. And... Uh, you know, after the Second World War, as the British were withdrawing uh, from every corner of the world, especially India, for example, in August of 1947, Suez, one of the last symbolic sort of representations of British um, uh, power as a global power. And uh, they did not want to lose Suez to this uh, newly emerging nationalist government uh, Many of us, many of the listeners remember Gamal Abdel Nasser, uh, an officer in the Egyptian army. Uh, this was a group of, uh, they called themselves free officers, who actually seized power and overthrew the monarchy in Egypt. Uh, and uh, they wanted to nationalize, as they called it, nationalize the Suez Canal, which means taking it over from the British. It wasn't just a question of... Uh, uh, pride, national pride, it was also a question of income, because every ship that goes through the canal uh, provides the Egyptian government or whoever holds it a, a handsome amount of money. Whatever the case may be, uh, the British were fighting it back, and uh, in this particular situation, uh, they brought the French on board. The French were very irritated by Nasser in Egypt because Nasser was supporting and providing financial and military support to uh, nationalist movements in North Africa. For example, the Algerians who were fighting the French, the Tunisians, the Moroccans, were all receiving support from Nasser. And then at the last moment, Israel also came in. And uh, it was a joint invasion of Egypt by the British, French, and the Israeli forces. The Israeli forces landed in Sinai very simple and quick, and it would have been all over because Nasser had no way of defending himself and the Egyptian um, state against three formidable uh, countries. But Nasser had established a very good relationship with Moscow, uh, with uh, Khrushchev at that point, and he also enjoyed a very close relationship with Washington. Uh, And I think it was really United States which uh, rescued him in the end. And in some ways, uh, I don't know what Mike thinks, but the Suez crisis is the last time the British basically uh, took an offensive without permission from Washington. Because without permission from Washington, it really backfired on them. 
and I always remember the photo, uh, the photograph of Anthony Eden, uh, who had just talked to President Eisenhower, who had told him to pull out the British troops, and it, uh, the caption under the photo said, the end of the British Empire. Wow. Uh, which means that the, the United States is the supreme power, and you do not take action without consent and support from Washington. With that, we're up against, we're uh, two minutes past the break. We're going to come right back. Uh, we also have Dave waiting to visit with both you gentlemen. Uh, this is uh, the KGVO Book Club. We'll be back right after this. Lorraine knew she wanted to adopt a teenager from foster care. I love teenagers. I think it adds an element of fun because you can really do activities as a family that everybody loves. The Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption believes you're never too old for family. More than 20,000 children in the U.S. are at risk of aging out of foster care without a family. Learn how you can help at DaveThomasFoundation.org. Hey, we're back on Talk Back. It's the KGVO Book Club. Uh, Dr. Michael Mayer here in the studio. Dr. Mirdad Kia joining us on the phone right now. And Dave has been waiting very patiently. Dave, you are on with our guests. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, good morning. As a student of history, I'm a little bothered by people who, you know, after a president is dead for a while, they, they start trying to turn him into some kind of saint. Now, Eisenhower had many great things that he did, but there were all many, some many bad things that happened that he was involved with, too. And I'm hoping this book, which I haven't read, uh, deals with those also. And I could go down the list if you want and hear from North Africa, his failure in North Africa, to when he was commander-in-chief and a, and a corporal, and uh, Bay of Pigs was planned, and, I can, and you know, Alan Dulles, I mean, is, are these things covered in that book? I mean, he did a lot of great things. Don't get me wrong, but he had some failures, too. All right, Dave, thanks for the call. Gentlemen, uh, well, go ahead. Well, of course, the failures in North Africa were were covered. Um, uh, early on, the uh, Allies did not, or especially the American forces, did not perform especially well in North Africa. They were rushed into combat. Um, and um, some of the field commanders weren't um, the, the right people in the right jobs and had to be replaced. Uh, the Bay of Pigs, I think, David, has, has it wrong to a degree. Uh, Eisenhower did not plan the Bay of Pigs, uh, neither did his administration. They began training uh, Cuban exiles in Guatemala in case the situation was such that they thought it would be uh, uh, advantageous to use them. Eisenhower never approved the invasion or the landing. Uh, that was Kennedy's show entirely, and it was a clown show. And uh, if you, we, we use a different term these days. Yeah, right? yeah. And, 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 and if you think that the commander of Overlord couldn't have arranged a better uh, yeah. approach on uh, at the Bay of Pigs, uh, you're, you're a little delusional. Uh, that had the mark of amateurs all over it, and I could go into that at some length, but uh, probably won't hear because I'll just make the point. That's okay. Go. Um, Mirdad, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, I think, I think uh, Mike hit the mark. I do want to use Dave's question, though, to address the uh, foreign policy of the United States uh, because, as Mike knows, there are uh, two very interesting characters in uh, Eisenhower's cabinet who have become controversial since then. And uh, depending on who writes about them, uh, you know, their power and influence uh, on Eisenhower has been either overestimated or maybe underestimated. And those are the Dulles brothers, John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles, 
one ran the State Department and the other one the CIA. And CIA, remember, is you know newly created more or less at the time, and uh, they did involve <clears throat> United States to a degree in uh, various uh, situations in Latin America, in the Middle East, including Guatemala, Iran, and so on and so forth. So, Mike, if you want to uh, comment on that, that would be fantastic. Yeah, I think those Merida raised two really important um, incidents, and I, I think they reflect in part Eisenhower's experience in World War II. Every American of a certain rank in the military or in the civilian government uh, was fascinated with covert activities because they worked real well. And the United States didn't have any professional covert activities until World War II, uh, at least not really well organized. Um, and first the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, and then, as Meredith said, in 1947, the CIA was created. And um, in, in the two instances Meredith talked about, the United States assisted coups against governments that were hostile to American interests and perhaps to America. And one was the Mossadegh government in Iran, and Meredith knows a great deal about that, and the other was uh, the Arbenz government in Guatemala. And in both cases, I, I think historians tended for a while from the 60s uh, on to overstate the, the American role in these things. The United States certainly supported those coups, but the coups in both cases were done by local people in Iran, which is, um, I think, a good example. In 1953, uh, the Mossadegh government um, nationalized the uh, Anglo-Iranian oil company. The British imposed an embargo. The middle class, and Iran had a large and influential middle class, and the military were disaffected. And um, there was a military coup against uh, Mossadegh, the, uh, the prime minister. Uh, the, uh, the United States is sometimes given credit for engineering the coup. I don't think that's, that's accurate. We kind of catered the affair. Uh, the United States provided support. Sure. I'll tell you what, gentlemen, we're up against another break. Uh, 721-1290 is our number. Uh, Tom is waiting to visit with both of you. This is the KGVO Book Club, in case you just joined us. Uh, it's relatively new, but it's been very popular. Uh, today we're talking about, about a book called Eisenhower, talking about uh, President uh, Dwight David Eisenhower discussing uh, the, his background and his accomplishments and and uh, moving on from there. So if you have a question or a comment, the lines are open. We'll be right back after this. How was your drive to school? Let me tell you. I had to get my iced coffee first. I just can't seem to put it down. My favorite rapper just announced a tour. My phone was buzzing like crazy. I'm so excited. I had to text all my friends right then to talk about it. Then someone started calling me and... Let's try that again. I turned my phone off right away. I never drive distracted. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. This is what it's all about right here, folks. Uh, this is the KGVO Book Club, and we really appreciate all you folks and your very thoughtful and penetrating questions. So let's get right back to the, the phone lines. Uh, Tom, good morning. You've been holding the longest. What's on your mind? Yeah, yeah good morning. Uh, you know, I'd just like to say I was born in 1947, so... Obviously, I didn't uh, pay much attention to the, the election in 1960 or 59, I guess. For but it seemed like everybody in the, the news back then was uh, griping about um, all Eisenhower did was play golf. So that's just one little aside. Um, and then uh, I've had the privilege of uh, visiting the, uh, the cemetery and the, the beaches at Normandy, and uh, which was uh, you know one of the highlights of my life. And then uh, also. Uh, I visited uh, President Eisenhower's farm in um, 
in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, which is just off the battlefield. So, uh, uh, you know, I kind of have a little bit of history with uh, uh, President and, uh, General Eisenhower. And uh, just one more thing, since this is a book club, I don't know if people know, but if you have a library card, you can get an app on your phone or your device called Libby, and uh, you can get these uh, books on your device or your phone in, uh, uh, you know, print or uh, audible versions. So. Anyway. Sounds great. Thank uh, yeah. Thanks for the update. Yeah. Thanks for the tip, too. Thanks Appreciate for the tip. Uh, before we go anywhere, I wanted uh, to give Meridad a chance to talk about the uh, Iranian coup, because he knows a great deal about it. Meridad, um, you're up. Go ahead. Yeah, actually, you know, it happens that uh, <clears throat> I'm teaching the course on Iran. It's called Iran Between Two Revolutions. And, you know, part of the class, of course, deals with 1950s. And as Mike mentioned, uh, the... Uh, reign of uh, Mossadegh, who was the prime minister of Iran, from April 1951 to August 1953. And that is when uh, the Iranian government <clears throat> nationalized the Iranian oil industry, basically took it over from the Anglo-Iranian uh, oil company. And uh, it wasn't really about the United States in the beginning. It was about the clash between the British and the Iranians, as the case with Suez, it, was, it wasn't anything to do with the United States. It was between a clash, a clash between the Egyptians and the British. Um, and, of course, initially, uh, as Mike alluded to also, uh, United States actually lent a great deal of support to Mossadegh, to the nationalist cause. And uh, uh, the Truman administration, and even in the beginning of the Eisenhower administration, there is indication that the uh, United States was basically trying to, um, to find a negotiated settlement between the two sides. And um, <clears throat> the U.S. ambassador uh, in uh, Iran was very much instrumental at the time Henry Grady to help Mossadegh uh, in his efforts to maintain his power. Uh, but as Mossadegh refused to negotiate and as the British were adamant about uh, maintaining their control, the United States became increasingly more involved. And uh, during uh, um, the, the time period is basically winter of 1952 to summer of 52. The United States became increasingly more convinced that Mossadegh staying in power would actually empower the communists in Iran, the so-called two-day communist party, which had penetrated the Iranian military, and that it would be wise to get rid of Mossadegh. But as uh, Mike mentioned, the actual coup was carried out by Iranian uh, army commanders, and uh, they were the ones who played a very prominent role. By then, the Iranian economy was in a standstill, and a lot of uh, Iranians were sick and tired of this confrontation between Iran and the West. And, of course, the rest is history. There you go. Yeah, I, th I think it's, it's, it's important that uh, Iran had a large middle class, and the middle class was hurt by the British boycott. Uh, it, was, it wasn't a boycott. It was an embargo. And so when you have the military and the middle class um, aligned against the government, the government was in bad shape. And as I was mentioning to Peter during the break, that 
uh, when people took to the streets. The only people who actually took to the streets in support of Mossadegh were Tudeh, the Communist Party. Uh, pretty much everybody else was happy to see him go, including the religious leaders. Um, they, uh, who, who many, many, many decades later now uh, claim to be offended by, by the overthrow, but they, they, they were on the other side in those days. Let's get another call on. Uh, Mr. Wingnut, Mr. Nutt, good morning. You're on, please. Well, good morning. Uh, I'd like to start out with a uh, suggestion, and if you know, it takes me a week and a half to two weeks to get these books, so I have to order them. In the case of this book, it was it was two weeks, and thankfully it was, it was short. Uh, so I was thinking that if you know if we could work on like a two month lead time, <laughs> okay, in in advance, uh, both for reading sake and for just ordering sake. But as far as far as this book goes, I had a couple comments, and one you know for Dave's benefit, uh, you know Bay of Pigs was under John, um, JFK, and. Eisenhower was very uh, unhappy or dismayed or whatever the appropriate uh, adjective is to use uh, that it did not, it was so poorly executed, there was no air support for uh, the Bay of Pigs incident and it was kind of like you're destined to failure. Uh, secondly, you know, my wife was a Korean immigrant and so she was uh, a young child during the uh, Korean War and and I still have a lot of uh, in-laws over there that I very much uh, have feelings and concerns about. And and it sure would have been nice if the you know the results of the Korean War uh, would have ended up differently. Um, and lastly, you know, there's the he, it book closes with Eisenhower's you know, famous uh, warning about the military-industrial complex. And Kind of the question, the thoughts is, I wonder what he would think today if if he was writing that speech and looking at the basically the bureaucratic media industrial complex. Well, that's kind of my thoughts. Interesting. All right. Thanks for the call. Uh, with that, before you, we we get you gentlemen to comment, we're going to come right back. Uh, quick uh, timeout. Seven two one three. Stole my thunder. I was going to talk about the military industrial complex. That's good. I'm glad you guys took care of it. We're going to come right back with more right after this. Okay, we're back on Talk Back, the KGVO Book Club, rolling right along. I want to say thank you to Mr. Wingnut for his comments. And I know both of you would like to jump off on that. So uh, who wants to go first? Go ahead, Miranda. Mike, go ahead. Mike, please. Okay, okay a couple of things. Um, one, I want to go back to Tom's uh, comment about golf because it's funny. It, it's true. People said Eisenhower was, had been a terrific athlete. Uh, before he tore up his knee, he was um, a frontline all-American player. He they, he they hadn't announced it yet, but um, he was a great athlete, and he liked to get out and get a little exercise. He'd hit he hit golf balls, but um, somebody uh, when they first began uh, a reevaluation, Eisenhower totaled the number of hours he spent on the golf course um, as opposed to Kennedy in his first three years, you know, the first three years of each. And Kennedy actually spent more time on the golf course and wasn't as good a golfer, even though he was much much younger. Um, and I think it goes back to an important point. I mean, Eisenhower, when he left office, was not regarded very highly by historians. And for um, maybe a decade after that, it was ironically historians on the left during the Vietnam War who began a reevaluation. Here was a president who ended one war, the Korean War, didn't begin another. It seemed like a good idea at the height of Vietnam. 
And then also the Eisenhower Library began to open up troves of documents. And in the 70s and in the mid-70s, the biggest and most important uh, uh, collections were open. And that began a reevaluation. Eisenhower, as Merida had pointed out earlier, moved in the public's estimation and in the estimation of professional historians from the middle of the pack up to last time they pulled professional mm -hmm. historians. He was ranked number five. Um, the, the last uh, comment by, uh, that was Wingnut, I think, yes. mm -hmm. who asked about the military-industrial complex. I thought I would just um, give people a, a taste of, of what that speech was about because it was Eisenhower's farewell, his last speech in the White House, and he... And if you remember, it was quoted during the movie JFK with all sorts of sinister music behind yeah, it. Yeah, right, and, and as, <laughs> as we're saying, that, that movie is yeah. one demented lie after another, but a terrific movie, really well-made okay. movie. But... Uh, Eisenhower said the conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large armed in industry is new in, Amer in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. All right. So, Mirdad, it's, uh, it, it's yours. Yeah, so, I mean, I know this speech is very important. The warning is very, um, is is considered to be a very important one. Um, I am uh, fascinated by uh, how he has made the sort of comeback, you know, from not being viewed as a great president to, you know, returning as number five in the long list which is quite impressive, actually. So I wanted to ask Mike about this. How does a president make a comeback like that? Yeah, well, Especially uh, a deceased president. Yeah, well, some of, <laughs> yeah. Some of it is yeah. political. I mean, yeah. again, the, the liberals dominated his writing of, of history in the 50s and 60s when the radical new leftists of the late 60s and 70s came of age and began writing. Right. They had a different perspective. So that cause them to re-examine the past. I and mean, people are always re-examining the past in light of the present. But the other thing is that the Eisenhower Library uh, opened up documents in the early 1970s and then a huge trove in the mid-1970s. And that's what really led to the reevaluation because it's very clear if you go out there. I, I've spent a total of, of probably about six months there since the mid-70s. And uh, if, you, if you go out there, you, you see Eisenhower all over the place. I mean, he, he wrote, he had a lot to do with writing his own speeches. He was very well informed, whether it's discussions of cabinet or the National Security Council or the long letters he wrote to so many different uh, people. And you, you realize that this, this was a, a formidable guy and it, it should have occurred to people before. Uh, after all, he, he rose to the Supreme Allied Commander during the war, but um, uh, people tended to forget that. I mean, and, and one good example is the Guildhall speech he gave at the end of World War II, which is in, um, in Kennard's book. Um, he was, uh, so who, who is the author, if you don't mind? The author is Douglas Kennard. He was a, a, a graduate of West Point. Um, he served in the military. Uh, he graduated in that famous uh, D-Day class of June 1945. Mm. Uh, and he went on to earn a Ph.D. In, it's, it's interesting. His, his bio listed in political science at Princeton. Princeton doesn't have a department of political science. They call it government. But um, anyway, he earned a Ph.D. in that department. Right and has, um, has gone on to teach uh, at the University of Vermont for uh, many years and has written some books. Okay, let's uh, get right back to the phone. And Al has been waiting. Al, good morning. Uh, you're on Talk Back with our guests for Book Club. Go ahead, sir. 
Well, thank you. Uh, I tuned in a few minutes too late from the beginning, but uh, was it mentioned that President Eisenhower made a trip out to Missoula? Was that mentioned? No. Well, uh, I took a... I was there... Wow, I'm not. I'm not quite like Dave, but anyway, uh, he came out here in the early '50s uh, to the dedication, and I'm probably going to use the wrong word. Uh, the Forest Service of the Smoke Jump Center. If you take a tour through the what I call the Smoke Jump Center, which right. has been closed here, uh, they do mention he came out here for the dedication of it. And I was born uh, two days at the end of '45, so I'm kind of. I was there kind of can't remember it. I remember he was two hours late. I think he came out in the, uh, Air Force One was a Constellation, I think, that, right. that, that uh, twin-engine tail thing. Anyway, I just uh, thought I'd bring it out that he made a trip to Missoula. Well, it's good Thank to you. know we, we have we have a touchstone there for us, yeah. <laughs> That's fascinating. Thanks. Thanks, thanks for the call, Al. Appreciate it. Do you, do you know that Nixon's first stop after the uh, checker speech was Missoula, Montana. He flew into Johnson Bell Field, um, and he stayed at the Florence Hotel and then went out the next morning. And I, I, I happen to know this because I interviewed uh, Bill Rogers, who was uh, Assistant Attorney General and uh, Deputy Attorney General and Attorney General uh, under Eisenhower and later became Secretary of State and so on. But uh, he... he he said, sitting behind a desk that cost more than my house, uh, said, uh, you know, you're from Missoula, aren't you? I said, yeah. He said, I was in Missoula once. And he told me how they flew from, wow. uh, the, 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 from Los Angeles to, to, to Missoula, Montana. And the next morning they went unrecognized in the dining room. Missoula didn't have television yet. <laughs> wow. And with, 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 hold, hold on. With that, we're, we're up against our last break here. So uh, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, Amir. We're going to come right back. Uh, phone lines are open. We have exactly eight minutes left. So if you have a question or a comment, Dave is back uh, waiting to make a comment. We're going to come right back at the, after this one-minute timeout. Unused prescription opioid pain medicines can spell trouble. They can spell risk if taken by someone they weren't prescribed for, harm if accidentally taken by a child or pet, or overdose if they're not used as directed. Safely dispose of opioids before they can hurt your family. Find a drug take-back option such as medicine drop boxes. You may find these in your community at local pharmacies or police stations. Visit www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. Meet Ingrid. Fiery spirit carrying grandma, proud trucker. I've logged more than 4 million miles in my truck. If people knew what I know, lives could be saved. I was driving outside of Ohio when a gentleman stopped suddenly in front of me. But it takes my 80,000 pound truck 200 yards to stop. I'd given myself extra room, but it's not a chance worth taking. It's, it's our roads. It's, it's our safety. safety. Visit www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. Okay, we're back on Talkback, 721-1290, and Mirdad, I apologize, I interrupted you to take a break, so please go ahead and finish your thought. No, 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 it was just that uh, our good caller brought up Richard Nixon, and uh, Mike mentioned him. Uh, I wondered if Mike wanted to say a few words about why Nixon was selected as the vice president. Yeah, it's a fascinating story, because Eisenhower was new to politics, at least in the conventional sense, and he allowed the uh, professionals in the party to, to choose his running mate, 
And they chose Nixon because he was young. People forget Nixon was once young. Right. And he was popular with young people. And he's not a crook. Yeah, well, <laughs> not yet. And he, he, was, he, he was known as an anti-communist. But above all, Eisenhower represented the Eastern or liberal or internationalist wing of the Republican Party. Nixon had ties to the conservative Midwestern wing, even though he was from California. Right. And um, he, he, was, he balanced the ticket geographically. He balanced the ticket ideologically and in terms of support. And, of course, the, uh, it came out that he had a fund that uh, a news, uh, one of the few pro-democratic newspapers in that election um, uh, said, you know, could have been corrupt. It was Eisenhower had... Uh, the uh, uh, an accounting firm investigated. It was all above board. Nixon was not yet a crook. And um, Nixon gave uh, a speech clearing himself, uh, the famous Checkers speech, and uh, remained on the ticket. But Nixon, Nixon was um, uh, an up-and-comer in the Republican Party, and he was also... Uh, in the Eisenhower administration, was kind of a political consultant. He was often the guy in cabinet who, and he was the politician. I don't mean in a negative sense. He was right. the one who would say, you know, we can trade this with these people mm -hmm. and the other thing right. with somebody else and we can get this passed. He was a political animal. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's uh, get Dave back on the line. Dave, uh, thanks for holding. You're on, please. Go ahead. Hello, Dave. Oh, I'm sorry. Did we miss you? Oh, there we go. Hey, hey, Dave, go ahead. Uh, you're on Talkback. Please go ahead, sir. Yeah, is that why... Eisenhower stayed out of the, the communist witch hunt thing that got pretty excessive. But my biggest gripe for Eisenhower personally was when he, he basically lied about Gary Powers and his flight, saying he knew nothing about it when he personally authorized all flights over Russia. So, uh, you know, that was back then you didn't lie very much as president, but nowadays, of course, it's different. But. <laughs> What, Dave, 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 what have you been smoking? The, the presidents have lied about things like that for uh, since time immemorial, and it goes back to Washington. Remember, the fifties were a time of innocence. Yeah, and well, and, and the cover story, which was put out by by State and the CIA, was that it was a weather plane that had that had gone missing. It accidentally encroached, and Eisenhower did go along with it, which he later very much regretted. But as uh, when Khrushchev produced the pilot, nobody thought that the pilot could survive. These these U two aircraft were were aluminum foil. They were very light, very um, insubstantial planes designed to fly at high speeds at high altitudes. And like a glider with an engine. Yeah, and, yeah. The, and the Soviets um, managed to get it with a proximity fuse. They'd been flying for years. They hadn't been able to hit it because of the height. But um, the, the, there was a prepared cover story. Eisenhower went along with it. And then uh, when Khrushchev produced the pilot who miraculously survived, Gary Powers, um, Eisenhower um, confessed to, you know, the, 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 that it was, in fact, an intelligence aircraft. All right. Uh, I believe Doug is up next. Doug, good morning. You're on Talkback. Hi. Well, I'm 83, and I've lived almost all my life in Missoula. And I remember Eisenhower flying in on the Columbine. And uh, there were so darn many people there and cars out there uh, by the smoke jumper center that... Uh, you could just see him come out and stand on the side on the little landing on the side of the plane, and uh, he, he just you know was a speck in, off in the distance. But my first memory of uh, Eisenhower uh, as a person in the news was when he was uh, rounding up a bunch of men who felt after World War One that they were entitled to um, some sort of uh, monetary. Uh, I don't know. It had a like, name, like a pension. It was it was the bonus marchers. Yeah, 
Yeah, and and he was there in Washington, rounding up these men and uh, sending them off out of the city uh, and back home. And uh, they didn't get the money they'd hoped to uh, to collect from the government as uh, a pension. They right. were all young men. Thanks yeah, for the call, sir. Go yeah, ahead. That's actually not exactly what happened. There, at the height of the depression, there was a the, the, a group of veterans who had been promised a bonus by Congress in 1940 came to Washington to ask for the bonus now because they were poor now and they didn't need it in 40. They needed it now. Um, the um, uh, they, they were not going to get it. The Senate wasn't going to pass pass that, and uh, they remained at the Anacostia Flats in Washington D.C. camped out. And um, eventually, uh, they they were they were their 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 removal was ordered. Um, Hoover took the blame for it. He he the president at the time, Herbert Hoover. He did not actually order the cavalry charge. That was Douglas MacArthur, not Eisenhower. Eisenhower was MacArthur's aide who went. Eisenhower went along actually quite reluctantly. And um, the cavalry charge on American veterans, which looked awful, mm-hmm. was was MacArthur's. And um, but again, Hoover took the fall for that. All right, so we have about a minute and a half, gentlemen. Uh, so let, let's wrap up, and we need to prepare for our next book club uh, next month. So uh, go ahead. So, Mike, you want, to, you want to talk about woke racism? Yeah, I'm John McWhorter, a professor of linguistics at uh, Columbia, has a relatively new book called Woke Racism, and it's his third book on, on race. He's written other books on linguistics. Um, the, the first one was uh, Losing the Race, and the uh, second was Authentically Black, and they, they dealt with issues very similar to the ones raised in Hillbilly Elegy, but th- this one deals specifically with the issue of uh, woke racism. All right. Yeah, and uh, the subtitle is, it's actually Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black America. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's an interesting sub, subheading. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. All right. Well, well, gentlemen, uh, as always, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Mirdad, uh, best of luck. Someday you're going to get back in the studio so we can remember what you look like. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much. We, we want to give you some coffee, dude. I mean, come on. All right. Anyway, well, listen, you have a wonderful day, sir. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. All right. That's uh, Mirdad Kia. Thank you, Michael. Always thank a you. pleasure to see you. Coming up on tomorrow's fabulous program, Mr. Nick. So 8.30 to 9, we'll have uh, Robin Driscoll, chair of the Democratic Party. Uh, we have someone replacing Don Kay from 9 to 9.30, okay. but we will have a guest then, and we're hoping to have Troy Downing then from 9.30 to 10. All right. So we have, we're, we'll be doing some politicking oh, tomorrow, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. So hopefully you'll, you'll uh, be a part of that at 721-1290. I want to say thank you to... Uh, doctors uh, Mirdad Kia and Michael Mayer for, uh, for the KGBO Book Club. That's going to do it for our show today. We'll see you tomorrow morning bright and early at 6 o'clock for...